Another person I love in this church is Angie. And come on up, Angie. I married her and Kevin. It's been, what, three years ago? Three years ago I married you guys? Yeah, we're going to go with that. Okay. Longer than that. But uh, anyway, I always love it when they're here and, and, and leading scripture, and, and I always look forward to this. And, and so I love your honesty with me. I love the relationship we have. So this morning I come up and I sit next to you, and you said to me, Rick, this is just a weird scripture. <laughs> you did. And you're right. It is. And um, uh, it is weird, so I want to help you know why I selected it and what's going on here before Angie starts reading, because if you don't know this, it's a weird scripture. The Apostle Paul was in a very close relationship with the church at Corinth. And um, he had been pastor to it, he had started it, he, he was connected to the leadership of it, he had been there several times. And Corinth was a very critical church in the life of the early uh, community of faith, both because of its location um, and helping to spread the gospel throughout the world, but also because it was a very cosmopolitan congregation made up of a lot of different mixes of economic strata and cultural backgrounds. There's a lot of lack of homogeneity in this community. It's a lot of differences. And in the midst of that, sometimes they would really get into squabbles. They would really struggle with each other a bit. And... uh, Apparently, there was a moment when someone really stirred the congregation up and started to take them in a different direction, sort of let them take them in the wrong direction, if you will, both questioning the authority of the Apostle Paul, but also, quite frankly, weakening the ministry there in court. So the Apostle Paul writes another letter that we don't have in our possession. We've not seen it, but it's referenced here. He writes a letter, basically scolding them, telling them to understand they need to get back on track. They need to start doing what he taught them. He needed to get them back into a faithful position. He sends a letter, and the congregation responds. The congregation responds as Paul had hoped. And now, in the letter we call Second Corinthians, he speaks about all of that in this section in chapter 7. With that set up, listen to what Andy's going to read to you now. I know I distressed you greatly with my letter. Although I felt awful at the time, I don't feel bad at all that I see now how it turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. Now I'm glad. Not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive us away from God are full of regrets end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You are more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. My primary concern 
was not for the one who did the wrong, or even the one wronged, but for you, that you would realize and act upon the deep, deep ties between us before God. That is what happened, and we felt just great. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do you join with me in a spirit of prayer? Gracious, loving, and eternal God, we ask that your word would come to us each today, whether it be through the words that I'm about to share, or through the reading scripture, or prayer, or the communion of the fellowship, or the music, or whatever it might be, that your word would speak to our hearts and to our lives, directing, redirecting, comforting, convicting, and doing the work of your Holy Spirit to build us up and to give us strength and the willingness to go where you need us to go and be who you need us to be. We pray this in Christ our Lord. Amen. Whenever you go to a new congregation as a pastor, that first Sunday with them is always an interesting Sunday. It's always packed. It's People show up because they want to sort of check you out. They want to see how you sound, what you look like, you know, how you preach, that kind of thing. But then, too, you're checking them out. You want to see how they look, how they sound when they sing, um, how many of them fall asleep during the... We're checking things off, too. And uh, uh, one pastor went to a church on his first Sunday to check out his congregation. Things have been going okay came to that part of the service where the congregation was invited to share the Lord's Prayer. And at that moment, everyone on the left side of the house stood up. Everyone on the right side remained seated. And they started saying the Lord's Prayer, but as they started saying the words, there were people who were standing up who started turning around and hollering at the people who were seated, you got to stand up! And there were people who were seated who were looking up at the people standing and saying, you got to sit down! And this went on all the way through the prayer. And the pastor was going, what have I got myself into? And after the service, he decided he wanted to figure this out. So he asked for someone who was seated on the right and someone who was seated on the left to go with him, to go meet someone he had met earlier before he got to the church, a 98-year-old man that everybody respected in that congregation who was part of starting that congregation many years ago. So the pastor, the one on the right, the one on the left, went to go visit this 90-year-old saint of the church. And they went there, and the pastor said, Listen, we're a little confused here. I'm confused. I don't understand what's going on. The people on the left side of the church, when we say the Lord's Prayer, they all stand. Is that the tradition that you remember? No. Well, the other side of the church all remained seated during the Lord's Prayer. Is that the tradition you remember? No. Well, that's weird because Sunday we started the Lord's Prayer and everybody started fighting with each other. He said, that's the tradition. <laughs> and there are some places that honor the fact of being able to battle with each other is part of our tradition. They're comfortable with battle. They like fighting. They're people enjoy that kind of thing. There are cultures that love being able to express broadly what they think and feel. And there are other cultures that are shocked when they see that happen in front of them. 
Some of us are comfortable with conflict, others avoid it at all costs, and most of us are somewhere in between. When we face challenges and conflicts in front of us, we measure the cost. What's at risk? What might we lose? Should I say something? Should I not say something? Sometimes it's dependent upon our mood. If I'm grumpy, I'm more likely. If I'm happy and had a cookie, probably not so much. Probably depends who it is, too, right? You know, is it a stranger? Do I want to get in conflict with a stranger? Is it uh, my sibling? No issues. You know, you have to be very careful and different things motivate us to speak up and to fight battles. Are we willing to live with consequences if we do nothing in speaking to what's happening around us? Or is what's happening around us causing us to have to say something and to get into the fight? These are the kinds of questions that the Apostle Paul was struggling with as he was writing this letter that we don't have a copy of to the church in Corinth. He knew things were uneasy. He knew things weren't going right. Um, and yet... He felt like he had to say something. He didn't want to say anything to alienate this congregation that he loved. He didn't want to get those people upset with him. He had heard that he was sort of on rocky ground with them anyway. He didn't want to do anything to make them all turn his back on them. Should he say anything? Should he not say anything? So apparently he finally feels motivated. He has to write his letter. He does. And from the way in which Paul writes about that letter, apparently it was cut to the chase. It was cutting. It was clear. It was scolding. And if you read any of Paul's writings, you can see how he could easily be one with a scolding voice. He was willing to risk it because he cared enough about that congregation. Now, the letter tells us that apparently the letter had its impact. The one that Paul wanted it to. People read it, understood Paul was upset, but more importantly understood why he was upset. They righted the ship, they came back together, they celebrated the relationship with Paul. The congregation was strong again, and Paul now writes in 2 Corinthians all about that experience. In thinking about his dilemma over whether to write the letter or not, it seems to me that you and I oftentimes find yourself in the same place. Is it better to say something or not? Should I speak up or let it go? What's at risk? What's the cost? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you ever do that with, I don't know, someone you're close to? Have you ever tried to measure whether or not it was time to tell, say, your spouse what was on your mind? or whether you should dummy up. Can I get an amen? amen. And if you make the wrong choice ever, amen. immediate feedback. <laughs> different places prompt us to do different things. But how are we supposed to know? When is it the right time to speak up? I, listen, I've seen this all my life. I've experienced it all my life. I've struggled with it all my life. You know, I do it in my own family relationships. I... You know, when do you say something to your parents? When do you say something to your spouse? Well, I've never had to for Laura. She's perfect. <laughs> this is recording, right? Make sure we record this sermon. Um, you know, I remember, how many of you as parents have tried to decide whether or not you want to actually scold your kids or not? 
Yes, it is. It's exactly as a rhetorical question. The question is, you know, do I really want to get, do I want to put up with it? I mean, we have agonized in our family when the kids were young. You know, geez, I really need to correct them. I really need to, but I know what's coming if I do, and I don't know if I'll put up with it. Listen, I'd rather have them be an ugly adult because I don't want to put up with their nonsense as a child. We struggle. The Apostle Paul, in writing this letter, though, I think gives us some understanding of maybe something we ought to be thinking about. The first of which is the Paul's decision as to whether to speak up, whether to fight the fight, was not measured by whether or not it served him. Oh, of course it was in his mind. He says it was. But the motivation to actually go ahead and write the letter wasn't because he was worried about whether or not it served him. It was about whether or not it was going to help have an impact upon the people. Grieved to repentance is how it's talked about in the New Revised Standard Version of this same passage. Grieve to repentance. Am I willing to help someone hear the truth with the hope that it leads them to repentance, to turn around, to get right, to make their life right, to do what is right, to be what is right? Am I willing to risk that? And is that more important to me than serving myself? So oftentimes, may I confess to you, my measurement as to whether I want to say the thing that needs to be said may in fact be measured because I wonder how it's going to impact me. But what if I actually love the other person enough to say what needed to be said for their sake? Risking. Something to consider about whether or not it's time to speak up or not. The other thing that seems to be really important to the Apostle Paul, and also a phrase that's found in the New Revised Standard Version of this same scripture, is godly grief. An interesting phrase, godly grief. Now we've all grieved, and we will all grieve. It's a price of being human, it's a price of being in relationships, it's a price of loving. And when we grieve, we oftentimes are grieving loss. We grieve what we've lost, and that's a very healthy, normal thing to do. I tell people all the time, the only way I can tell you to avoid grief is to know no one and love no one. But if you're going to know people and you're going to love, eventually you're going to have to experience grief. It's part of the deal. I can't get you out of it. I can't get me out of it. And there's nothing wrong with grief. But godly grief is not that. Godly grief is not the grief I feel for what I have lost. Godly grief is when I consider what have I done or what's going on that grieves God. What's happening right now, what's happening in the world, what's happening in my life, what's happening in this relationship, and quite frankly, it may be benefact, benefit, I may be a benefactor of what's happening right now in some twisted way, but it grieves God. That God actually cares enough, by the way, did you know that? Cares enough about you and me and the world that God does grieve the things that sometimes we do. Do you understand what I'm saying? The ways that we would treat people, the way we talk about people, the way we break down people, the way we are unjust to people. God grieves those behaviors. And when we are willing to consider, is what we're doing bringing God grief? And if the answer to the question is yes, it's time to speak up. It's time to go to battle. 
I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but for me, that was new thinking recently. I worry so much about saying the wrong thing to the congregation. You know, I want you to keep liking me. Well, the five of you that really like me, I want you to keep your life really like me. No, we're in a good relationship. But, you know, I don't want to really upset people. We want to be nice. But if what we're doing is bringing God grief, is there anything that justifies not speaking out? Not about arrogance. It's not about that. It's not about, oh, I know everything, I'm always right. If you don't do it my way, God must always agree with me. That's not it. It's about humility. It's about submitting yourself to Christ and saying, listen, I really want the best as I can understand at this moment what Christ wants and what God would want. And if it's grieving God, then i got to speak up. Something to consider as you're wondering when you should go to battle, when you should fight the good fight. Why all of this? Well, we saw the movie Bumblebee. Now, I know a number of you, when we first saw we were going to go see Bumblebee, thought, oh, geez, a Transformer movie. I had a few Transformer geeks at the 9 o'clock service. I assume I have a few here. Do I have any geeks here? Yes, okay. We're here, yes. This is a safe space. You can confess. It's all right. But I also know there are some of you who are not Transformer people. Maybe that was your first Transformer movie you ever saw last, last week. Anybody see a Transformer movie for the first time last week? Hasn't your life been changed forever? <laughs> I had a number of people come out of the movie and talk to me about the fact that it was not what they expected. Now, what you may or may not know is the fact that this movie, in fact, is very different than some other Transformer movies. They got a different producer, they got a different a director, and different script writers because Transformer movies hadn't done an awful lot at the box office lately, and because primarily, you know what they were? They were giant robots beating each other up in outer space. And that wasn't enough. So they wanted to bring personality and story, and so Bumblebee actually became the most human car robot I've ever seen. Can I get an amen? Actually almost cuddly. If you can think of a Volkswagen bug as cuddly. But also, too, was the story about Charlie, a young girl slash woman, at 18 years of age, grieving desperately her father, who had died. Her mother a good mom, was already involved in a new relationship. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that we don't always grieve at the same time at the same space. Her little brother was, well, being a little brother. So she felt like she had no one. And the place where she found her greatest comfort was to go out into the garage and take the tools that her father had taught her to become a really excellent mechanic and to work on the car that her, she and her father had worked on before he died. That's where she found peace. But mostly she felt odd. She felt lost. She was the odd one out. And her grief was more weight than she could carry. That was until she was confronted by a truth that she had forgotten and maybe never knew. She was stronger than she was giving herself credit for. And she found great strength within herself. When she met Bumblebee. And they formed this vast friendship, and she became a warrior in a galactic battle. Because a relationship 
founded on care, respect, and justice, drew her out of her grief to find a way to live again. It's not a bad movie. Not a bad message either. Oh, by the way, an 18-year-old girl slash woman trying to figure out her own self-identity and founded her own strength without needing a boy to help her. Can I get an amen? <laughs> yes. No. If you have a daughter and you don't teach her that, teach her that. So there are lessons in the movie. But the lesson I came out with was this. There are some battles worth fighting. And the scriptures give us some understanding of which ones are ours to take on. This is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, his birthday, his life is celebrated tomorrow especially. For me, it's the national holiday that transcends American interests. It speaks to the human spirit in all people that responds to the movement of God to be willing to stand up in the face of injustice. It says to us that, in fact, there are battles worth fighting. There are times when we must speak up in the face of evil. When God is grieved and people are not treated justly, God's people, yes, the church, must stand up and speak out. Yesterday, I listened to the speech again. I have a dream speech. How many of you have an Echo Dot or a Google or something you can speak to that will play music and whatever? How many of you have a computer or a screen or a smartphone that you can get on YouTube? How many of you have 17 minutes today to do something I'm going to ask you to do? Sometime today, 17 minutes. Listen to I Have a Dream speech. Could you at least do that? And remember. I listen to the speech. Of course, whenever I listen to the speech, I always listen to it more than once because you have to. And oh, by the way, if you'd like a copy of the speech, they're available for you, the full text on the welcome table. The rhetoric, I have a dream, is probably known by most of us. But in listening to the whole speech again, I was reminded of these words that reflect the Apostle Paul, who was teaching his people it's not only about the fight, but it's about how you fight. It's about that you do so with humility and compassion and a concern for God and a concern for justice and not serving your own interests. And here's the way Dr. King said it. But there's something I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads to the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. 
The marvelous new militancy which has engulfed the Negro community must not lead us to a distrust of all white people for many of our white brothers and sisters as evidenced by their presence here today have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. We cannot walk alone. And in a world that has learned how to fight but not how to care about justice. In a world that loves to make sure we defeat our enemies but never build harmony and community, it is time for us to recognize this simple truth. The people of God will at times be called to do battle. How we do it and when we do it Does it grieve God? Will it serve the other? Will it bring justice and establish the kingdom of God? We must live up to the standard as Christ taught as he's being crucified to forgive those who killed him. To the Apostle Paul who was willing to risk it all for the sake of those he loved and to Dr. King who chose to stand up and lead a country to see the truth about itself and change. Now, our church loves to pride itself on hospitality. We, we celebrate our statement of diversity. We want to be a positive influence in our community. We want to make people's lives better. All that's true, and all that's good, and all that's right. But here's also the truth. If we are to truly engage in the lives of others, if we are truly to be involved in a community, there will be times that we will see things that we will understand grieve God. And there will be time to speak out. It'll be time to stand up. It'll be time to be counted. It'll be time to have a holy battle where our goal is not to defeat enemies, but to raise people up and bring about justice. And in a church where we're oftentimes so worried about being polite, I sometimes worry that we've forgotten to invite people to repentance. There's some days I need a little message to help me be a little bit better person, but there are also moments in my life where I just need to flat out fall down humbly in front of God and ask for forgiveness because I have fought with sin and lost, and I have screwed up, and I cannot put enough lipstick on that pig to make it pretty. And it will be time for me to know that if I have grieved God, God in that moment seeks my restoration and my new life. I do not know what battles you will need to fight this week. I ask you to consider how you will fight them, reflect Christ, and I will ask you, is God's heart being grieved by what's going on? If the answer is yes, And I encourage you to be God's witness and speak up. And if today you came in here knowing that just a little bit of nice Jesus is not enough, but you need confession and forgiveness and repentance, know that this is the right place for you as well. For we ain't playing. We want to be God's people. We want kingdom of God in this world.
and we will love you into it, but we will also fight for it so that God's heart will not be grieved and no one will be excluded. Would you join with me in prayer? The number of things for which you cry over, Lord, we cannot even begin to understand. But the fact that you are grieved over the hurts of this world tells us that your desires for them to be fixed, healed, forgiven, redeemed, and that includes us. For all and anyone in this room right now who knows it's time to be completely honest with you and themselves and to surrender all and to hold on to you for the work of forgiveness and transformation to occur, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ for them to be forgiven and restored. And for everyone outside of this room and in this room who are being treated unjustly, who feel unloved and excluded, then I ask that you would stir within us the battle cry. Not for our sake, and the Lord knows not for our glory, but for yours. May all know what it will be soon to be free at last. Amen.